Um, I'm, I'm happy to preach again. It's been, aside from vacation, this is like the longest I've been straight out of the pulpit because of either illnesses or snow um, or schedules. So it's been like more than a month since I preached. So just to let you inside my weird head, the way I preach is like every week, um, it's like a champagne bottle or for you teetotalers, it's more like a soda bottle where it just, I, I like shake that for the week. That's my sermon. By Sunday, it's let it go. Um, I've done that like th- two different times with this sermon and it just fizzes out by Sunday because of either illness or snow. So this is like the third time this, this message has been shaking around for a while. It might've gone past this expiration date at this point. So I'm just warning you, but, uh, I am excited to be back with all of you. So we're going to be looking, um, back in the book of Acts. So you can definitely pick up your Bibles if you want to follow along or the verses will be up on the screen. We're looking at Acts chapter 10. And kind of a little bit of a long passage, but we want to give you an um, idea of the whole story going on here with Peter and Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God <coughs> come in and say to him, Cornelius, And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals (coughs) and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what vision had he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Peter Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, uh, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them into his guests. Let's uh, skip to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins 
through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? (coughs) Just as we have, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So we got the story of of this man, Peter and Cornelius. And you're going to hear throughout the rest of this book of Acts, there's one city that's kind of the trajectory. It's called Rome. And obviously the power at the, t- at the day was the Roman Empire. So ultimately the end of the book of Acts is going to get us to Rome. And what Luke is doing here, he's getting us ready for where the story is going. So we meet our first Roman. Throughout Acts, we meet our first Roman here, and his name is Cornelius. And this dude just flips our stereotypes. Because if you think about the Roman Empire, you would think of those in power, those who would abuse those who are not in power, maybe mean. Um, but what we see here in this is this Cornelius, is, he's a centurion, which means he's a middle-ranking soldier. He's got about 100 men who are beneath him. He's a good, trusted soldier, but he's also a good guy. He loves God. He's devout. He prays regularly. He gives alms. That means he's generous to the poor. He's, he's, he worships God. He wants to know God. So we, we're introduced to Cornelius, and then we, enter, we meet Peter again. And some of you are a little more familiar with Peter. Peter, at the same time Cornelius is hearing from God, he's in a town called Joppa, which is about 30 miles down the coast. So at, at the very same um, general time frame, Both these men, Cornelius and Peter, they might not have much in common, but what they've got in common is God speaking this message to them of of how he's intending to move. And I love how it happens to Peter. I like Peter for a lot of reasons. He reminds me of myself, just kind of in past, like, you know, he just goes by what he's thinking. Um, and I love it here because he's going to pray. So he's a holy man, but he's hungry. It says he's going to pray. He just gets hungry. And I, I can identify that because I go to pray and I wish I could just focus on pray. But I'm thinking of like breakfast and lunch. I think about those things. That's what Peter's doing. So God in his kindness gives him a vision, gives him a trance. And I'm imagining Peter's ready, yeah, you know, throw down some, like, McDonald's and some steaks. And, you know, and God gave him these, like, nasty animals, reptiles and birds and stuff that he's not supposed to eat. And Peter's just like, what's going on here? I'm hungry and I need a trance and a vision and this is what I get. And and he he pushes back, right? He's like, Lord, you you said eat, but I've never eaten anything unclean like this. I've never eaten anything common because Peter, he's a good Jew, and he knows the law. And there are food laws that we find in books like Leviticus chapter 11. Some of you, if you got uh, friends of Jewish heritage, you know that there are specific food prohibitions. Like there's no pork, right? It's because of the way the animal's constructed with the little piggy feet. You're not supposed to be eating that. So it makes breakfast hard because there's no bacon, right? But anyway, th- th- that's the laws. But it's not just pork. There's a lot of sea creatures that you're not supposed to eat. A lot of uh, reptiles, a lot of birds, a lot of different animals, again, depending on their construction. So Peter knows this, but this is not just food laws. This is not just about what you can eat or you can't eat. That's the obvious thing. But it's also about who you can be with or who you cannot be with. Because the reason God originally gave these laws was to prohibit the Jewish people from becoming defiled in a new land that they were coming to. And the best way you wouldn't get defiled is, well, you can't eat the same food, so you're not going to be in the same place. So it wasn't just about don't eat this and that. It's basically don't be with these people because this is what they're going to eat. 
So Peter knows this. And, and the reasoning was clear for, for, for the people of the Jewish heritage. Um, who you sat down to eat with, and maybe you can identify, right? You eat with family. You don't eat with these people because they're not family. They eat differently than you. They got different laws. So you're supposed to stay away from them. Um, and, and this might sound like God contradicting himself then because now we're saying, well, why, why is God telling him to eat then? God at one time was saying, don't eat this. And now he's telling Peter, eat this. I, I mean, is he contradicting himself? Uh, we would say, suggest it's not God contradicting, 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 contradicting. It's more he gives certain words that are given for a particular period and for a particular purpose. So it's not God changing. It, it's, he's giving words according to the season they were meant to be given. So in our house, for example, if you, if you came into our house, you would think one of our Ten Commandments of our home is sit down, right? Because it's constantly, especially during mealtimes, all you hear in this house is my, my wife and I going, sit down, because our kids don't sit still. Like they up and out. Our little one, she just loves to dance while she eats. So, and I guess... We should celebrate that in some way, but it makes food last like two hours. And I want to, so we're like, sit down. But then half an hour later, you'll hear, get up, right? Because they also don't move very quickly when it's time to go get their shoes on. It takes forever. And it's not even shoelaces. Like when I was a kid, it's like a little Velcro, but it takes forever. Like, get up. So you would think we're contradicting ourselves, but we're not. It's depending on the situation, we're going to say different things. And, and that's a silly way to kind of explain what's going on here. That makes sense? All right. Some of you are like, where is this going? Uh, but understanding this, this is critical to know why it was such a big deal that we read that Peter entered Cornelius' house. We see that, right? He entered this man's home. You might think, well, it's not a big deal. But it's very significant because um, not entering a Gentile's house for Peter as a good Jew, this was not just, um, he wasn't just prejudiced. You know, he wasn't just a prejudiced guy, but um, this was the best way he knew how to worship God. His law was like, you do not defile God because God has given us prohibitions against certain foods. And if you go into a Gentile's home, you are going to be becoming unclean. So for Peter, he's always known a way of life to obey God. You don't eat bad stuff. You just eat what's good. And we would know that it's kosher. And then you don't go into the house of a Gentile because you'll become unclean by the law. So imagine what's going through Peter's mind as he's traveling to go see this cat Cornelius. Just imagine what's going through his mind, what God is trying to teach him here. He knew the word of God. He knew that ultimately Israel was promised to be the light to the nations. So it, it's not that he's thinking, you know, this is only for us. He knows the word of God. He knows God has promised all the world will know God through you. He says, through the scripture, it says, all from the east to the west, people will come from all over. But for Peter, like a lot of the people he walked with, their idea was if you, um, people who are non-Jews, yeah, they'll come to know God. But what it will look like is they are going to have to become Jewish. They're going to change their culture. They're going to renounce their old culture. And they're going to become ethnically Jewish, including dietary law, including religious observance, including all these things. They will become Jewish. So Peter affirmed these different promises, but his world is being rocked here. And, and we have to make sure that there's distinctions here. Um, sometimes you might hear this passage, um, and you might think that the lesson is 
God is saying to the people, it doesn't matter who you are anymore. You know, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your background. God accepts all just as they are. That somehow Peter learning about Cornelius, it's about tolerance. Um, And this is where you guys, for us living in 2016 America, we've got to be mindful that we're not reading the Bible just through our modern cultural lens. Because I would suggest in, in modern day America now in the West, probably there is no worse thing to be called than intolerant. Right? You can be called a fatty. You can be called smelly. You can be called like um, bad at video games, all this stuff. And, and you're like, well, whatever. Your beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But if someone calls you intolerant, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't put that out. I'm not intolerant. I love everyone. I'm accepting. I'm, I'm equal. And, and to be called intolerant is probably like the worst things to be called here. And I think we can hear that. And then we can read the message here and say, yeah, God's saying the same thing. He's saying that we're all exactly the same, just it doesn't matter. You know, you come to God, whatever. Um, But I don't think the lesson here is that God's teaching Peter about getting rid of all their distinctions or that God simply accepts everyone just as they are. I mean, if that were the case, why does it matter whether Cornelius was worshiping or not or whether he was devout? If it really doesn't matter um, what you believe, why Peter going to go see Cornelius? Cornelius, if he heard us say it doesn't matter what you believe, he would get horrified because he would say, no, 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 no. Uh, this, there's a reason why I'm rejecting my uh, common gods. I want to worship and know this God of the Hebrews. So we got to be mindful that we're not reading our cultural tendencies into this story because, you know, our modern day assumption is, well, you know what? In the end, as long as you mean well, all religions kind of end up in the same place, right? I mean, the way you get there might look different, but, you know, we all bite the elephant a different way. But in the end, it's all an elephant, right? I mean, you hear silly stuff like that. Um, In the end, as long as we're well-meaning, we'll get to the same place. But I don't think that's what it's saying here. It's not saying that God simply accepts us as we are. And let me say that for a second, because you're somebody going like, well, that's not the gospel. Of course God accepts us as we are. I'm going to, I would tweak that a little bit. I don't think it's that God simply accepts us as we are. He invites us exactly as we are. He invites us as we are in whatever jacked up condition we might be, no matter who your mom or your daddy is, where you're from, what you've done, what you were doing an hour ago, what you were doing last night, what you'd be thinking, what you're even thinking right now. And by me saying that, you just thought something else. God invites us wherever we are, come to him, yet we come to him so that we will be transformed. It's never God accepts us just as we are so that we'll just stay the same. He invites us to come so that we will acknowledge our sin. We will, be, we will repent of our sin. We'll be transformed. We'll follow Jesus. We'll get baptized. So guys, I, I, want, I just want to make clear, this is not a modern day story about tolerance. Rather, this is a glorious first century um, lesson in truth that in Jesus, God has taken the distinctions that historically had always existed between Jew and Gentile and boom, he's just saying no more. That those distinctions don't last anymore. You who used to say you were better because you were born culturally as a Jew, my chosen people. No, no, no. It's not going to be like that anymore. We are all have equal access now to God. Um, and, they're, and they're acknowledging, basically, if you are Jew or Gentile, you are going to have to die to certain assumptions, whatever it might be. Uh, if you're a Gentile... You're having to die to certain things because you're basically saying, I choose to worship this Hebrew God. I mean, that, that in itself is dying. But for the Jew, 
there's also a death to their culture because they're saying, now anyone has access to this God. Not just those who are historically the people of God. And that you don't have to be Jewish now in how you eat. You don't have to be Jewish in how you dress, in how you conduct yourself. But now this message of forgiveness of sin is available to all people. And Peter, in verse 34 and 35, he really encapsulates this where it says he opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is great news. This is amazing news. And sometimes, some of you smart people, you'll, you'll, have, you'll, you'll have thoughts like, you know what, though? I, I dig this whole Jesus thing, and I love how he's kind. But I just I can't accept this fact where we say it's only um, for certain people who would do certain things. I mean, that's really exclusive. I mean, I thought Jesus was all about inviting everyone in. This sounds like it's keeping people out. I'm going to suggest, actually, the Christian faith is the most inclusive faith system in the world. Because there's no system of if you can pay your way in. There's no system of if you're born in a certain country, if your mama or daddy was a certain way, if you come from certain cultural backgrounds, if you're born in certain nations. If you, there is no caste system. There is no system of anyone better or worse than anyone. We are all equally in need of God. And wherever we come from, grace is available to all. That's amazing. That's part of the story here. How many different backgrounds do we have in this room? We got the one commonality saying it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So it's incredibly inclusive. But I can imagine for Peter, his mind is just, the wheels in his mind are just turning as he's taking all this in. Because he's been a good Jewish boy. He's always known what it means to be a faithful follower of God. It means obeying the law. I bet Peter, I can imagine, he's like full gusto, right? Chugging his uh, energy drinks and saying, All right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, (coughs) all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Yeah, 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 I'm going to do it. And then recognizing this man who is a leader in the church, God is telling him, Even with all you know, you still got something to learn, boy. Even with all that you know, even with all the ways you're doctrinally pure, even with all the ways you... I mean, he could teach our core four, right? I mean, this this is like Peter, right? Even with all that you are and solid and orthodox and right, you still have something that was needing to be learned in your faith journey. There was still something that you were lacking in what it means to fully follow Jesus in your life. And and I, I, I think, I mean, I think, I think that's real. I think that's real because we talk about what does it mean to be mature as we follow Jesus. And we usually have a list of like doctrinal beliefs and that's all good. Um, But I want to get into some real talk here. And I I love it when people say real talk, right? Because that's assuming everything else is totally false up to that point. That's, I just like that word real talk, but uh, get get into some stuff here. Um, Because I'll be, I'll be honest. I'm on social media a good amount. A lot of it's connected to church. Some of it's not. Um, And I'll put stuff out on Twitter or Facebook and the funny thing is, I, I write some good stuff about, like, following Jesus and, you know, loving God and, you know, write things. And, yeah, I get, like, one like or one comment. Like, no one ever looks at those things. But, man, if I write anything having to do with race, it's like, you know, people get all mad and get all crazy. And I get people sending me private stuff and, like, hate mail and, like, different kind of things like that. People get really angry. And these are often, these are often um, very people solid in their faith. 
I would say these are people who would say genuinely they believe in Jesus, they love Jesus, they love the Word of God, they probably know more than you and I put together, who will come back with all the ways, well, I'm just jacked up, why they feel sorry for you, that you got to listen to me, because I'm this uh, crazy, like, race-baiter, divisive kind of personality. That's where I get the most pushback. Um, But I think these are things that we need to talk about in the safety of a church context. Amen? Amen? Um, I'm going to assume... All of uh, most of the uh, people who are sitting in this room, I'm going to assume just by the fact that you're here, you're fairly open when it comes to talking about issues of like race and culture. I mean, I can't imagine why you would be here if you're not, because I'm like, look at me, look at what I talk about sometimes, right? You would be crazy if you're still here. I mean, I'm the son of like a North Korean refugee, right? Um, I'm assuming just the fact that you are, unless this is your first time and you're like, okay, (laughs) well, time to leave right now. This is one of those crazy kind of guys in crazy churches. I'm going to assume that you're fairly open and progressive about these. And and you're the type that when you hear descriptions of like, um, certain political candidates and their followers are described as Christians, like you get kind of, especially like you are Anglo brothers and sisters in here, right? Like you get kind of mad. You're like, man, I hate that I'm identified. Yeah, I'm white. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm not like those fools. And, And you get kind of like upset about that. And you get a little, you know, don't lump me in with all this. Even if it does, I, I want, I, this needs to be a safe place. This needs to be a place where we can talk about these things, whoever you vote for. And, and our church is not a political statement. Um, if, if you want me to endorse someone, a presidential candidate, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to. Um, that's, not, that's not the way it is. I will say, though, that whoever you are following and, and leaning towards voting for president right now, there is no one that I would say is like the biblical candidate Every single presidential candidate got some jacked up stuff about them that you need to evaluate according to the word of God. And you need to be able to sit with your conscience and say, I can still vote for this person. But what I'm saying is here, I don't think we're the stereo. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't think anyone in this room is like the stereotypical, like, um, man, I just hate black people. Oh, I just can't stand, you know, these foreigners coming over to our country. I don't think, and maybe you are, and I hope you still feel safe here. I, I really do. Um, but I'm going to guess most of us in this room are not like that. <sighs> but you're fairly open-minded, but I think we all still need to learn. I, I still think we all still need to learn. Because if we are going to have any sort of relevant, relevant voice in our culture as a church, the church, and I don't just mean the village, but the large church, we need to be able to engage honestly in issues of race and ethnicity. If we're just going to be able to have a voice in our culture at all, and the point of this whole sermon is not talk about these things, but I want to stop here for a little bit and address it. <coughs> Excuse me. Our church, and hopefully this part doesn't scare you, we would be described as a theologically pretty conservative church. I mean, some people would use words like reformed, and if you have no idea what that means, that's not the worst thing in the world. But we would just be described as a theologically uh, conservative church. What that means is we place a really high premium on the Bible as the Word of God. We believe that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. It means things like we believe the stuff in like the core four class, the content is really good, like doctrinal stuff, theological stuff. We believe those things are really good, and you should go to them. We, we think that's a really good idea. Um, so we would probably fall in line with churches that share similar theologies, you know, high view of the scriptures, different things like that. But my observation has been, um, sometimes in this kind of circles I'm describing, we can place such a high premium on certain 
boundary lines of what it means to be an Orthodox believer in issues of doctrine or maybe theological statements or creeds, um, right belief, that we develop blind spots in other areas of following God. Does that make sense? That we can be so good about saying, this is what a mature follower of Jesus is and have all these theological statements. And again, we totally affirm that. But what I've noticed in our communities, we can somehow develop other blind spots. And I think one of those blind spots is, is in regards to race and justice. I, ju- I just think that's one of those blind spots. And, and we're going to have a picture up here. And I don't know if you can fully see it with the lighting. Um, this this kind of got a little social media buzz last week when it came out. But um, this is part of a children's book, a Christian children's book, trying to teach theology to young children. And this portion, someone had noticed in this book, and, and the author of this book is a tremendous Christian author, loves Jesus, solid and very well-known. Most of us, if you do children's stuff, you've probably read it. But this was part of the story teaching about redemption, redeemed. And I'm not going to look at the whole thing, but basically the picture there is of an African-American woman standing on the slave block. And that's what it is. And, and you've got these other dudes around there, and by their shade, you would assume they're white guys who are basically there. And, and here's the one line that stood out to me where it said, um, redeemed. How do slaves get free? Someone, quote unquote, redeems them, pays the price to buy them back out of slavery and set them free. And, and you know, people, that, that, that's, what, that's the way that this author used to describe redemption. And, and the thing is, um, again, this author is solid. Any one of us would say she is an orthodox believer. She knows her stuff. She's sensitive. She loves God, loves people, loves children. Uh, we don't think she hates black people. <laughs> Just a really good person. But if you are a person of color, particularly African-American, and the first thing you saw when you see this, you're like, oh, no, she didn't. <laughs> really? Someone seriously thought that was a good idea to put that on? There wasn't any, like, someone saying, you know, you can't do that. that I, I mean, redemption, you're going to talk about redemption and use the slave trade as the example of that? There's a point, and, and, and here's a way to check even our own hearts. Maybe you looked at that and you had no idea if that, that was offensive or not. I mean, and this is, again, the point of all this is not to shame. I think we live in a shame-based culture where nowadays if you disagree with someone, especially online, what do you do? You shame them. That's horrible. We, we need to learn how to show grace to people. All we do is shame one another, right? No one ever changes. Everyone just stops posting stuff. So the point of this is not shame. I want to give the benefit of the doubt to this author. But what it reveals to me is that there are blind spots, even for the most doctrinally orthodox, that requires having diverse points of view around you in your community to say, um, that might not be the best idea. I know what you're trying to convey. That's not a good way to convey it. For a lot of people, you are just like taking scabs and just ripping them open. You're giving people, some people a reason to say, yeah, this is why I don't walk with certain people in the church. Does that make sense? Um, the reason we bring up some of these things, and, and honestly, the reality is, I might, I'm addressing all of us, but we're still in a majority Anglo culture. I think the politically, that's a politically correct term to say white. We're, we're predominantly Anglo. And, and maybe, yeah, I don't think most uh, Anglos identify themselves as white, that, you know, unless you're the KKK, I guess you really, most... Most Anglos don't identify themselves as white, 
probably it's more other people of color would identify white people as white. That's some of the part of being a privilege. When we talk about privilege is not having to identify yourself a certain way. That's just reality. That's just life of who you are. But, um, I would suggest for a lot of people of color, um, your, your ethnicity is part of your identity. It, hopefully it's not like your only part of your identity, but it is a part of your identity. And that's something I think it's hard for every person to be able to understand when we talk about issues of race. And, and what I want to say to, especially, I'm all, but especially my white brothers and sisters in the room here, um, I think it's kind of hard to be white nowadays. That, that's just my opinion. Um, I'm not saying it's harder than being other. Uh, you know, I, I'm, never, I'm not saying that at all. But I do think there's something hard about being white because there's a certain sense of not knowing exactly what to say, not knowing what is sensitive, not knowing what is um, a way to honor other people's. Sometimes it's caught between those two places of, man, you know, I try to engage and all I do is end up saying things that are offensive. <laughs> so if, but if I say nothing, people say, why don't you engage? So it's kind of like a, a hard place to be. And I, I would fully affirm that. And why I say that is if you are Anglo in this room, in our church, I hope that you can feel safe as we engage these conversations. This is not meant to be a place of shame. I think in our national discourse on, on race and ethnicity, it's just a big shame pot. where We just make people feel horrible about the way. And if you're white, I mean, if you're anything, if you're Latino, Asian, Native American, African American, we need to have a place where it's okay to be born and created the way you were. And if you're white, that's okay. You know, there, there doesn't need to be this shame attached to these things. Um, but what I do want to suggest is, especially if you are white, perhaps some of what God is trying to do, and maybe the, even the reason you're part of this church community, is to ask you to start to engage in some things that realistically you have no reason to engage in. Because for you, being white is just who you are. And you get, part of you maybe even wishes, man, I wish we could just get beyond this conversation because I don't think about race. I don't think about what color I am. I don't think about what color people are. I just, I'm a human being. Again, I would suggest maybe that's a good privileged position to be in because for others, you do think about it. But as we follow the way of Christ, what we know about Christ is he lived out empathy. What that means is he came to this world to identify with us when he didn't have to. He came into a broken, sinful, hurting world when he didn't have to. So for the poor for the purpose of dying to himself for the sake of others. And I want to suggest for all of us, maybe part of being in a community is saying, even if something doesn't directly affect me, even if I never think about race in my life, what would it look like for me to start to take steps to ask questions? Because I know that my brother and sister over there does. They really wrestle with this. And this is a part of their faith journey. And if I'm going to walk together with them, I want to know. And I will say this, I think if our understanding of the gospel, if it never deals with reconciliation, I think we're believing an incomplete expression of the gospel. If our understanding of the gospel never deals with reconciliation, we are believing an incomplete expression of the gospel. So what are some steps we can take together? Again, the goal here is not shame. The goal is not for anyone to feel worse who they are because they are. The goal is to walk together. How do we redeem community, walk together? One question I would ask you, what authors are you reading? Um, what authors are you reading that are helping to develop your theological growth? Uh, maybe the first step, if you don't read anything, start reading. That, that would be good. That's a good, good, good goal to achieve. But um, here's why I ask. 
I remember back, like way before we started the church, I was in a one day training and it was a really great training, but it was led by a very prominent uh, group. And, and I'm again, goal is not shame. So I'm not naming any names really solid, probably one of the best solid Orthodox Christian groups that knows their stuff. Um, but the whole day they're talking about like, you know, different issues of theology and doctrine, which was great. It was awesome. I love it. I'm a nerd. I love it. I'm not smart, but I'm a nerd. I love it. Um, but the thing is, the thing that was troubling me was every resource and book was basically written by old white guys that are dead. That was their philosophy that anything worth reading was like ancient kind of stuff. So I just asked the question at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? This is really good stuff, but can you recommend any authors or any resources that are not written by old dead white guys? And I remember as if it's today, the guy just stared at me and said, no, not really. Anything worth reading is they're, they're old, dead, and white. And, and he genuinely believed it. He genuinely believed it. And, and that's fine. And, and the thing is, you can get really solid orthodox doctrine, like good systematic reformed theology, but the challenge is your perspective of what you're learning is going to be very narrow because of who's giving it to you. And, and I press people on this. I press on this. Um, and for us then, in this room, if you are someone especially who, who wants to grow and learn, look at your theological library and ask yourself, who's writing all my books? And if it's all just a common kind of author, no wonder in the church that we're kind of colorblind because it's all influences under the similar perspective. Does that make sense? So maybe for some of you, it's a step that you want to take. Look at your authors, look at your books. And if you need some suggestions, and this is just obvious, not even a huge list, but I mean, some great authors out there to explore. If maybe you don't, maybe you want to take a step. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, great, great author from a Latino perspective. Christina Cleveland has written many good works out there to expand our views on race and ethnicity. Uh, Sung Chan Ra really presses the envelope in some of these areas. Uh, Anthony Bradley right, has written some really seminal works. Basically, what I'm saying is you got you to read from different perspectives. And I'm not saying go out and find like, the looniest people you can just because they're not old dead white guys. That's not what I'm saying. These are all solid orthodox people who can provide different perspectives than sometimes the theological tribes we run with provide. Amen? Does that make sense? You guys still hanging with me? You good? Daylight savings, all right? So ask, what authors are you reading? Another thing really practical for our community, um, I think when we look at the story here, there was something significant about Peter entering this man Cornelius' home. To enter the home, but also this idea that we can break bread together now. We can eat. And I know some of y'all think I'm a joker when I talk about eating together as a theological thing. I am totally dead serious. I believe one of the most theologically rich things you can do is sit down and share a meal with someone, break bread together. Because what you're doing is you're saying you and I can share table space. You and I can share fellowship. That's where you and I will get to know one another. And I think the table where bread is broken together is the table where reconciliation is lived out. The table where bread is broken together is the table where reconciliation is lived out. Because this is great. I mean, we can sit here in a Sunday service and talk about reconciliation and love and all those things. But guys, it's got to be lived out in the practical, in the day-to-day. And, and uh, what I would suggest and challenge all of us here is to extend yourself beyond your normal circles of interaction. Extend yourself beyond your normal circles of interaction. Our church... We love organic. I mean, we used to be actually a lot worse, 
by organic, I meant like we used to schedule meetings and no one would come because it was scheduled. But if somehow people just told word of mouth, people would come to stuff. It was crazy. Like people really rebelling against this idea of structure. We've gotten better. But I think sometimes we love organic. And what that means is we want things to just happen on their own. And we hear that about community, right? Man, I don't want someone telling me who to hang out with. That just feels weird. That's unnatural. I just want it to happen. It's like, like I fall in love. I want to fall into community. I just want to, I, I want to know there's like natural things that connect us. And that's all great. But my experience has been, and the reality is that organic often keeps things in the status quo. That when we do organic, yeah, we'll connect with people. But most likely we're people of our flesh too, right? We will often just be with those who have a lot in common with us. If we're not intentional about going beyond that. And as an Asian-American, I'll speak to Asians here. I'm not looking around, but there might be a few Asian-Americans in the room. Um, As an Asian-American, I think that's a weakness of our particular community. Community Community-wise, we're tremendous. We are tight, especially in churches, but we're not very good at going outside of that. I think there there needs to be some intentionality there. Because it's easy to just kind of walk together with those who you might feel you have a lot in common with. But for all of us, to be intentional. If you are going to invite people into your home, try to be going beyond just those whom you might have in common. And I'm, I'd say, let's not be weird about it. Like, don't make a list and think of, okay, let me think of all the black people in the church or all the Asian people. Okay, you're going to be my next dinner companion. I mean, don't be weird, but just get to know people. <laughs> yeah, don't be weird. We should make that our slogan, right? Don't be weird, but get to know people. Extend yourself beyond what's normal. Um, I'm sure at this point, even some of you, maybe in this room, you're probably thinking, man, why do we got to even talk about this stuff? Fool, why you talk about race and just make it about the gospel? I hear that all the time, right? Just make it about the gospel. Um, Guys, I'm going to suggest this is about the gospel. This is about the gospel. Because we have to understand the gospel. It's not merely a statement of doctrinal belief, but the gospel is a renewed and transformed people. The gospel is not just a, um, a statement of doctrinal belief, but it's a renewed and transformed people. Uh, I hope you guys caught this at the end of chapter 10 there. The significance of the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles in verse 44. And, and it says, it describes it. You know, Peter's describing Jesus. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit comes on the people and they start, they're filled with the Spirit. They start speaking tongues. They start going crazy. I, and I, I love, I imagine... Peter and his homies, they were just shocked when this happened. Because they're like, cool, you know what? More people to hear Jesus, great. But I don't think they expected that these new people would also receive the Holy Spirit. Because they're thinking the Holy Spirit is for those really of God. God's people are going to receive the Spirit. So it's starting in verse 44 there when, it, when uh, they received it. It says Peter was amazed. And I imagine it's like when you see those tremendous basketball dunks and you go through the audience and people are like, oh! like I think it was like that. Sorry, I got my throat going. Like, people were amazed. Peter and the Jews, they couldn't believe that all of these Gentiles, they're also receiving the Holy Spirit here? You mean you're saying they're the same as us, God? You mean you're saying you're going to give them the same power and authority? Because this is going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the word was, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Guys, what this is saying is it's not just that the Gentiles will receive the message of Jesus. They're also going to take it. 
they're not just going to be nice little recipients of this good news. They're, they're going to help take it to Rome. And they're going to help take it beyond this world. And they're going to be sitting in Baltimore in 2016 because not too many of you are probably ethnically Jewish. And you're going to continue to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the time. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit that empowers and enables. God will be with these Gentiles in the same way that he has promised to be with the Jews. Isn't that amazing? And guys, I mean, honestly, I don't know if you're like me, but you turn on the news and you're like, man, our world is jacked up. People rioting and, you know, political rallies having to get canceled and people fist fighting and people hating each other, white racists and, and, and people, and, you know, it's just nuts right now. The, 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 but guys, we have to recognize, I think sometimes we have a um, current event kind of myopia, like with the news cycle as it is, we think that now is like the worst ever. It's like sports, right? If someone plays basketball now, they're the best ever. Well, no. <laughs> but in the same way, we think, oh, man, we have never been this divided as a people. Oh, we have never been discharged racially. Oh, we are horrible. We're getting worse and worse. Oh, we're denigrating a society. Oh, we're crazy. No. <laughs> it's always been like this. We've always been jacked up. Well, you know what it's called? It's called history. People always been each other's throats. You think we're divided now? You got a whole history of Jews and Gentiles that didn't even sit down in the same room together. And what God is doing is telling them now, now you are going to be one. Now you're going to break bread. Now y'all are going to sit in a room together and you're going to worship together. So as much as you and I think that sometimes we look at our modern day world and think this is hopeless. We could never be one. I got a lot of hope because I believe in God. And I see what he did here in first century in bringing people together. And then I look at what's happening right here, even in our church and others throughout. Where, you know, honestly, the reality, I mean, I don't know if you look around you, a lot of people here, you would not be sitting in a room with some of these people who weren't for Jesus. As we walk out the steps here, I love it because we walk out in mass on the nicer days and people are driving by and they're walking by and then they do this. They're just looking at the room and they're like, what, what, what the heck is going on there? Is it like an A meeting or something that's pouring out of this place? And, and I love it because well, well, all we can say is, you know, what's going on here is Jesus. Jesus brings together people who would have nothing else in common. Jesus breaks down the barriers. He breaks down the barriers of sin between us and God, but he also breaks down every cultural barrier that could exist between every single one of us here. Yeah, we are in a divided world. We're in a fractured world, but so were the Jews and the Gentiles. And guys, that's why we talk about reconciliation in our church. Um, this is not to be like socially active or this is not to be like culturally event, like um, sensitive cultural events and, or, or this is like how we should be in 2016. This is a gospel issue for me because the more diverse our church is, the more people hear about Jesus. I, it just boils down to that. I want more African-Americans in our church, not just because it'd be great to have more African-Americans, because we're going to have more African-Americans being reached for Christ. Then I want more Asian-Americans in our church because that's going to be more Asian-Americans are going to hear about Jesus. I want more Latinos. I want more Native Americans. I want more people born and bred in Hamden in our church. You know why? Because the more born and bred people from Hamden who are in our church, the more born and bred Hamden people in the community are going to hear about Jesus. 
And I want more white people here. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? I want more. I want just people to come here and to be safe, to become community, no matter how different we might be. Because our goal has always been that we're going to send you all back out again. And we want you to go to whoever God is connecting you with. And you might be able to connect with people far better than I would or someone else in this room is. And it's the gospel. And that's why we desire to talk about and and live out reconciliation. Because, guys, we are a living, breathing billboard for the work of God through Christ in our world. We, you and I, sitting here, worshiping together, eating together, praying together, living together, playing ball together, doing all these things together, we are like a living, breathing billboard for what God is doing in this world. That people would look at us and say, I don't get it. There must be something that is Jesus. And I said that quote earlier about, about eating, that the table where bread is broken together is a table where reconciliation is lived out. I would suggest it's the same. Again, I love the eating part, but I would say it's the same thing about the table here, the Lord's Supper, the communion. That, that why, the reason that we do this every week is for you, if you follow Jesus, for you to come. And, and you come and you take that wafer and you remember the body of Jesus that was busted up for you. You remember the body of Jesus that was just broken for you. And as you dip it in that cup, you remember the blood of Jesus that was spilled so you could be made right with God. And the thing is, yeah, our world says we're divided. Our world says, yeah, you know what? You got nothing in common with another person of another ethnicity. We're so different. We all think different hashtags, all that stuff. You know what? Um, you have, you and I, we got much more in common with any single person with DNA on, DNA on this earth than any of us did with Jesus. And no matter how different we are from one another, we got much more in common with any single person on this earth than we did with Jesus. Yet what he did was he interjected himself into our world to take on our sin, to reconcile us to him, to say he's going to come because of love and make us his own. And that's what we do when we come take communion. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus. You remember that though we were rebellious, though we went our own way, though we didn't give a rip, Though we don't care about people, though we're not, though we're selfish, though all these things, yet Christ loves us and died for us. How then can we now withhold that from another? Even the most jacked the person you can think about in your life. How can we withhold that kind of grace and mercy from another person? And that's how God starts to build unity. That's how genuinely I could look at a lot of you and yeah, man, we got nothing in common. And I'm like, brother, sister, because of Jesus. And, and we come to the same table. You notice there's not like 10 different tables around here for different demographics. You know, we got some um, like bagel bread over here and we got some toast over here. We, no, it's one table that we all come together. We don't got like a rice table in the back. It's one table that we all come together because it's the one Christ that has the power to unite us. Amen. So stand with me. And I want to ask you, before we come to the table together, um, to bow your head. And, and just as we're thinking on these ideas of being reconciled, are there any people that you hold anger towards? Is there a people group? I mean, honestly, I think for us at The Village, one of the reasons we have to talk about race is we live in one of the most racially charged neighborhoods in Baltimore. A lot of white supremacy in this neighborhood. A lot of hate of black people. So it's important that we stand up.
And we say, no, that's not the way it's going to be. That we're going to be a community that says, you know what? We love the ways that we're different because it's able to show us God in different ways. And we're united because of this Jesus. But I think part of that is, is acknowledging any, do you have any anger in your heart? Do you have any kinds of those thoughts? Maybe for some of us, you can say, you know what? I just haven't thought about this stuff before, but maybe God is saying, take a step in some of the ways we described. Not for myself, but for the sake of my brother, for the sake of my sister. So join me as we pray for a moment. Lord, help us as we come to you and come to your table. Help us as a church, Lord. We want to be a church that's uh, not just for the sake of political correctness. We don't give a rip about that, Lord. Not for a nice image of what it looks like different people. Lord, all that's fine, but in the end, this is gospel truth that we're demonstrating the power you have to unite people because you did that with us first individually. And if you can do that with us, how, how can we somehow not think you can do that with a group of people? So help us, Lord, as we come to you, as we come to this table this morning, Lord, remind us of what it means to be found in you and that we would give the same kind of grace and mercy uh, just very intentionally to another, Lord, to live out these barriers that have been broken. So help us as we come to you right now. So let's pray, receive communion. You can come up either ways. Um, sing, and let's just respond to the word this morning.